There are many Ruths. There are not many. What I'd say is there's not many Ruths and Boaz in this church, but there's a lot of Naomi's. And you're going to understand this in a second. Ruth, however, is really this, this person who just has incredible devotion, incredible trust in God when there's no reason for her to have trust in God. She's a Moabitess, which means that she is not part of God's covenant people, but yet she still trusts him. Ruth is like a diamond in the rough. And when you find somebody like Ruth, they're the kind of people that just hang on to God when there's really no reason to. I find in our prayer meeting on Tuesday nights, there's a lot of Ruths in there. They come every Tuesday night, and they really don't get much out of it but prayer. They just believe. That's what Ruth was, was somebody that just believed. And then we're going to have this guy, Boaz. We're going to learn about him in the next couple of weeks. Boaz is an interesting guy. Boaz is what's called a type of Christ. He's known as a kinsman redeemer. He is going to be the one that comes and offers hope to both Naomi and Ruth. When you read about Boaz, he is almost a guy that's too good to be true. Like his, he's too, there can't be somebody like this. I was reading this story the other day. It was about this non-Christian who was being witnessed to by a Christian. And the Christian was telling him about the gospel and about this person, Jesus, who came and died for all of our sins, and all you have to do is believe in him. And if you believe in him, you have eternal life. And the non-Christian said, oh, that's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. And the Christian said to him, if a perfect God existed, as the Bible teaches, would you want him to be just mediocre? Or would you want him to be too good to be true? Would God who's unimpressive compel you? Or would a God who can do anything compel you? And if God really was God, wouldn't one of the main criteria be that he was like no one else? That he was too good to be true? And so in other words, Christ is meant to blow us away. And so Boaz, as being a type of Christ, is to show us that God is good. And he can redeem anybody, even Naomi and Ruth. And what we're going to see, starting in this chapter, is they really have it bad. The theme of this book is really simple. I wrote it down here for you. It's that God's activity is hidden beneath the everyday of life. You could say it's hidden through the works, the actions of human agents. As you live, you don't think God is there, but he's always acting in your life. One writer said, if you want to give the theme for this song, if you could write it in a song, the theme of Ruth would be he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got a little bitty baby in his hand. He's got Naomi in his hand. He's got you on Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock when nobody sees you in his hand. He's got the whole world in his hand. And so as we go through Ruth, you're going to see that he's going to use both direct intervention, but he's also going to use providence. That means the actions that happen during the day-to-day, through the boredom, through the monotony, through the difficulty, Through the terrible times, he uses those two to show just how great he is. That is the theme. So we're going to take chapter 1 in three parts. Part 1, I'm calling Desperation. It starts off really bad. And in the first five verses of Ruth, we get probably the bleakest picture you could ever have. Begins in verse 1 by saying it's the days of the judges. 
The days of the judges. If you know anything about the Bible story, the days of the judges was a time, as it says in Judges 17.6, when Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. So that means there was no authority, there was no law, and there was no fear. People did whatever they wanted, and it just resulted in a nation of chaos. It was a dark time. Enemy nations would come into Israel and put them under subjection. The name of God would often be ridiculed, ignored, and mocked. This time of the judges reminds me of another nation, of another time when people have no respect for the living God, when they do as they see fit, when they identify as they feel, when they mock and they spurn the name of God. And in fact, America is a place of self-rule and personal liberty, and it's full of chaos, just like it was for Naomi. Second thing it says is during a famine. A famine, according to Isaiah, is a time when God takes away supply. What supply is, is food, water, your crops wither on the vine, the fruit does not come in season which results in no joy and no happiness. The land turns to stone and the bellies of people are hungry. And some people believe a famine, whenever you see a famine in the Old Testament, it's a sign that God is displeased with the people. I don't know if that's the case of Ruth, but whatever, we know this, that Ruth and her husband, they were in bad straits and they needed relief. So it says they moved to Moab. The Moabites were not God's people. They were actually on the other side of the Jordan River. The Moabites attacked Israel during their wilderness wanderings, and the Moabites were not looked on as favorable nations. But Elimelech and his wife Naomi, they were known as Ephrathites. They were part of Judah. They were living in Bethlehem, and the Ephrathites was a clan that was sort of elite you can read about them earlier in the Old Testament. The idea is that this is a noble, mighty family, a mighty family in Bethlehem. So they probably had the resources to leave while everybody had to stay. Sort of reminds me of spring break. There's a lot of people during spring break in March that have the money and resources to go to Cabo San Lucas or Cancun or Aruba while I have to take my family to Fazoli's on Alpine. You see what I'm saying? They had the ability to get out of Bethlehem and let everybody else rot in the famine. That's the idea of going to Moab. They think they were almost their own saviors. They used their own wealth to rescue themselves. But then we have the worst part of all. It says that Naomi's husband, I don't know how soon it was, but Elimelech died. So here's Naomi in a foreign land and her husband's dead. But she's still a little bit of hope. She had two sons, and hopefully those sons could have grandkids, so she could still have an inheritance. She could still have a legacy. So they married Moabite women. We'll talk about that in a second. So they marry these two ladies named Orpah and Ruth. After 10 years, however, they were still barren. 10 years is the Old Testament sign that God's closed the womb. Then Mahalon and Kilion, her two sons, die. So here's Ruth 
with two daughters-in-law, no kids, no husband, no sons. You think you have it bad? Ruth had it really bad. Her whole world has been destroyed. And this happened in five verses. So in these first five verses, the idea is that the walls have collapsed on Naomi, her world has gone dark, her heart is crushed, and humanly speaking, there's no hope. Where's the answer? Sort of how it was before Jesus came to the earth. Luke 1 says, people were walking in darkness before the light came. In fact, that's the way God always works. He first breaks us in order to save us. We'll talk about that in a little bit. There is a question, though. So if Naomi, whose name is Pleasant, is loved by God, why would he crush her? I mean, that's bad. She lost her husband and two sons. And my question is, is pain and sorrow, the pain and sorrow that you and I go through every day, some of you have it acutely, like extreme. Is pain and sorrow his punishment? Like, does God get mad at us, then pound us? Or does he use pain and sorrow as a part of his plan to win us? In this story of Ruth, there's two rabbinical schools of thought. Like when you read the commentaries, some rabbis would say, Naomi had it coming to her. One group said because they left the promised land. They left God's favor. When they left Judah and went to Moab, they were leaving the blessing of God. So they shouldn't be surprised. So in a sense, they would say you shouldn't really have pity on Naomi. It's her own fault. Another group of rabbis said, well, it wasn't just that. But it was mingling with the Moabites was the real problem. They were not to mingle with the Moabites. So in a sense... Her family were sinners, and they deserved punishment. As if God wants to, he's always watching you, ready to hit you with the two-by-four if you mess up one time. Is that how God operates? There was a story in the New Testament, book of John. This guy's blind. And when he's blind, the disciples saw him blind. He was blind from birth. And they asked Jesus in John 9, 1 through 3, they said, Rabbi, Rabbi, I have a question for you. And they're asking from a good Jewish perspective. You do something wrong, you get punished. So they asked Jesus, they said, this man born blind from birth, did he sin or was it his parents? So you can hear them saying, ha, 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 they did something wrong. That's why they're punished. And that's really the default mode of all of us. The guilt you feel, you're often like, I probably deserve it. You want to hear Jesus' answer to them? He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, what Jesus is saying is God is not a bully. He does not delight in punishing. He's actually a good father who knows how to gently bring us to himself, not to destroy us. Sometimes he'll allow us to hurt so he can heal us. So in his sovereign wisdom, what you're going to see is the story of Naomi was set up so that he can redeem them. 
And in that redemption is joy and gratitude. Desperation, and I think it's true for all of us, desperation is like a lever that God will use to move a heart of stone. And sometimes he's doing it with you right now. Act 1, part 2. It's the decision. Verses 6 through 18. So watch how verse 6 begins. So here is Naomi. No husband, no grandkids, just two Moabite daughter-in-laws. Not much. Verse 6 begins by saying, Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. Huh. The famine's done. There's a glimmer of hope. A tiny little ember starts glowing in her heart. God's favor is returning. Hmm. She heard through the grapevine that the famine has ended. People in her hometown, her crops are growing again, and she's hoping, she's dreaming. But probably not too much, because later on we're going to hear how she's still a little bitter. She's still a little upset. But she has a little bit of hope. She's sort of like me. I think her motto would be like mine. Hope for the best, but expect the worst. But I think her hope is this small. Uh, Maybe. But, you know, God's already beat me down. But I, I have a grain and mustard seed of hope. He can do it. So here's her decision. And it's really right in the middle of verse 6. Her decision is this. Do I humble myself? and return home to go back where I left? Trusting God, or should I just stubbornly suffer and it's, you know, just kind of stay here and eat my crow? Could you imagine going back to the place you left, leaving them behind? Especially if it is true that they escaped the famine while every, they let everybody else kind of rot in it. Could you imagine... Um, coming back to a, let's say it's a 25th high school reunion. You've been away for 25 years, but you're 50 to 100 pounds heavier, got gray hair, all the people in your family died and you got no job. Would you want to go back? I wouldn't want to go back. There's a lot of people that they look back on their past, they know God's calling them, maybe start over again with faith. We have communion today. You can start over again. You can ask for forgiveness and begin again. No, no, I don't want to move. There's this stubborn pride that people would rather wallow in their misery than give God another chance. But out of desperation, she had no other choice. She swallowed her pride and she went back home. But then, because she loved her daughters-in-law, they wanted to go with her. I guess they had an incredible relationship. Naomi must have been this lady that was... Just incredible because both of her daughter-in-laws weep over her idea of leaving. But she said, I don't know if I want you to come with me. She gives them the facts. She goes, if you come with me, number one, there's not going to be a man for you. Back in the Jewish time, they'd have inheritance laws. If a man married a woman, he inherited the land. If he died, his brother would then marry the woman. And that's kind of how they do it in the Old Testament. Everybody's dead. And so she said, If you follow me, I'm not going to have another husband. I'm not going to have any more kids. You're not going to have an inheritance. But then she also is kind of saying, 
go back home to your own people. Intimating, if you come with me, you're going to be shunned. You're Moabited. It's not going to be good for you. And so really the decision she's presenting him was this. Do I leave everything I have ever known and follow an unknown God in a new land? That's what Ruth had to decide. And that's what real faith is all about. It's giving up your past, your old way of living, and then placing your faith completely in God. I wish when we told people about Christ we were more honest with them because really Naomi's counting the cost. She's saying if I go back home it's going to be bad. If you follow me it's going to be bad. And did you know if you follow Christ sometimes it's really hard. We have presented Christianity as you know sugar plum and fairies dancing. If you leave what was familiar to you and give up to follow Christ you're going to lose a lot of friends. Some people are going to mock you. I had somebody laugh in my face when I told them I was going to Bible school. They thought I was a fool. So all Naomi's doing is count your costs. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to know what you're getting into. So what did the daughters decide? There's two of them. Orpah. I used to read it like Orca to kill a whale. It's not Orpah. It's Orpah. And, they, and Ruth. So you have Orpah and Ruth. Orpah listened to Naomi, and she's like, you know that you're right. I'm going back home. She went back home. What's interesting is the writer of Ruth, they don't castigate her for that. They don't say she's a terrible person. It's reasonable. And then you have Ruth. So here's Ruth, and she's in the middle of a decision. But then in verse 16 and 17, look what she says. It's probably the most powerful two verses in the book of Ruth. Verse 16 and 17. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So the, there's a commentator, his name's Hubbard. He uh, asked this question. It's a question I always have had. Is Ruth a convert to Jehovah, to the Israel God, or just a devoted daughter-in-law? Like, is it about her love for God, or just does she just love Naomi? Is this a confession of faith, is the question? And he comes to the conclusion, he says, yes. When you read the words, the tone, the style, they're a confession. She was willing to change the whole direction of her life. She even appeals to Yahweh, may the Lord deal with me ever so severely, which is enforces her oath. So she is placing her faith on God. And she probably heard about God. She married her husband for 10 years and I'm sure Naomi was very vocal about her faith. So Ruth, you could say, was definitely a convert to Jehovah God. I like how he ends. He says, Yahweh is now her God, and in her faith, listen to this, in her faith, Ruth soberly gambled the security of the familiar for the uncertainty of the foreign. She is gambling the certainty of what she knows with the uncertainty of what she doesn't know 
because she's placing her faith in Christ. Mary did this. If you remember the story of Mary? So here's Mary. Mary could have been either 14 up to 18, the mother of Jesus. But before she had Jesus, the angel Gabriel approached Mary and said, Mary, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. You're going to conceive and give birth to a son. And you're to call him Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And then Mary says, but how will this be? And she said, because I'm a virgin, which means she never slept with a man. So if I conceive and I've never slept with a man, do you know what people are going to think of me? Do you know how hard this is going to be? The angel said, "Um, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the one born to you will become the Son of God. So she's, she's, she's got to gamble. Do I gamble the certainty of my past by saying, I don't want this, forget this. I don't want this. I didn't ask for this. Or does she trust in God and an uncertain future? That's what faith is. Some of you don't believe in Jesus. Some of you don't. Because you love your life and your past. You know it. makes sense to you. You know how to navigate it. And some of you know God is calling you to change, to give up, to be different. But it's a gamble. What did Mary do? Listen to what Mary said to the angel. I'm the Lord's servant. Do whatever you want with me. That's faith. Mary took the gamble. How about you? Have you ever gambled? Have you ever let faith take over your life as Ruth and Mary have done? If you have not, you're going to be stuck in Moab forever. This leads us to part three, the return home. This is an interesting, it's really you you hear the thoughts of Naomi the whole time. So in order for your faith to be true, you have to do something about it. You can say you believe, but if you don't change, you really don't believe. So in order for faith to be true, it must act especially through the storms of life. So both Naomi and Ruth went forward to Bethlehem not knowing what they were going to face, but they were ready. Can you imagine Ruth's uh, and Naomi's thought? What will people think of me? Here I've got a Moabite daughter. I've got no husband. And you know how ladies in the town talk. What will they think of me? Will I be able to provide for her? I've got no husband. And this takes courage. So when they get to town, it says the whole town was astir. That means everybody was excited. There's no recrimination. There's no, I told you not to go, Naomi. I told you what would happen to you. Instead of being Pointed at with grubby fingers, people had their arms open wide. They were excited for her to come back. Did you know when you leave church, a lot of people will leave church and they'll be like, if I come back, you know, people really don't want me to come back. They're probably talking behind my back. They're probably criticizing me, thinking I'm a sinner. You know the truth is, people just want you to come back. People have more grace for you than you could ever believe. 
come back. God loves it. But here Naomi, they see Naomi, they're all excited. She says, you know what, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. This is in verse 20. Call me Mara. She's got kind of a heaviness on her. A, she's still clouded by the hurt of the past. And she's ready to take her punishment. Just call me bitter. Call me bitter. Because she said, look at this. I went away full. I went away full, but God has returned me empty. But did you know that's how God uses your life? He wants you to be empty so he can be the one to fill it. He always uses our emptiness to draw us to himself. Always does. That's how he always works. To return home to God, you must be sick of the world. That's the case with Naomi and Ruth. They had nothing but God. I was having a discussion with my son. He goes to a college where people have a lot of money. They're really rich. And he said what's interesting about them, even though it's a Christian college, those who seem to be the wealthiest have the least hunger for God. It's because they're already full. He's beginning to realize if you have a lot of money, wealth, assets, things we call human fullness, it's hard to turn to God and need Him. I kind of I use this illustration. That's why people get me those circus peanuts. You know those circus peanuts? People always get me circus peanuts. You don't have to get me. I've, I'm loaded full of circus peanuts. But if you eat circus peanuts before you eat dinner, you won't want to eat dinner. Did you ever eat a circus peanut? They're these little marshmallows. You eat them, and then what happens to them? They go in your belly, and they expand, and they take over your whole stomach. So when you see a steak, you, a steak won't even go down because circus peanuts kind of congeal right at your neck. That's what the world and wealth do to people. It congeals their faith. I don't need anything. I got everything. Think of it like this. God wants you to have the best. What is the best? Himself. So maybe the most loving thing for him to do is to take away some of those things that you think are the best and empty us so we will turn back to God so he can then fill us. I don't like that. I don't like that thought too much. I'd rather win the lottery, honestly, but it's true. It's still true. So Naomi in her emptiness has the guts to express her frustration. Look at verse 21. Some people don't like this verse. It's kind of harsh. Verse 21. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So in a sense, what she's saying is she's saying, call me bitter because God did this to me. God did this to me. Kind of makes them sound mean. People don't like that. But what it's really doing, it's expressing a deep faith that Naomi has in God. There's, a, there's been a movement lately to, to kind of say when bad things happen, God didn't know about it called the openness theology, that God just, he really can't stop bad things from happening to you. He, he, he's, uh, he's kind of, he didn't know. He's not sovereign. But what Naomi's saying is he knew and he let it happen, so really he's to blame. 
And I like what one commentator said. He basically says the righteous person, the person who has faith, knows that if God can hurt me, allows me to be hurt, that means, that means he also can heal me. Listen to what he says. By holding Yahweh responsible for her losses, Naomi affirmed his participation in the events. That then means things are not out of his his control. And because of this, he still might straighten things out. Her bitter complaint is cloaked in firm faith. You can state it like this. The righteous know that a God who can hurt can heal. If he's not responsible for the hurt, then that means there may be a problem that's too big for him to heal. I know this is a hard one for people. People are always like, if God's good, everything's going to be hunky-dory with me. Sometimes he allows difficulty. And what Naomi's doing is expressing the heart of somebody that has a relationship with God and is frustrated a little bit with God. Are we allowed to be frustrated with God? Yes. Job was. He didn't condemn God, but he's allowed to vent his frustration. David does in Psalm 13. It's how she's wrestling with a God whose ways are a mystery. I like to look at it like this. So if you're married, TJ, since you're married, does Stephanie give you a honey-do list? Do you know what a honey-do list is? Honey-do list is honey-do this, 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 and this. So your wife will give you a list of ten things. And if you don't do anything on a honey-do list, sometimes your wife gets a little frustrated. I don't know if you've ever felt that before, but I asked you to do this and you have not done this. So there is a frustration, a venting of frustration. But that frustration is also a recognition that she trusts that you can get it done. You're able to do it. But her frustration is in three things. It's in you, don't, you didn't do it the way I thought you were going to do it. You didn't do it on my time frame. And you didn't do, I would have done it a whole lot different than you. It's a statement not of condemnation, but of frustration. And in a sense, God does things not on our time schedule. He doesn't do it the way we want, but he does it a whole lot better. He's a mystery, and it's okay to vent to him, but let him take it. Because every wife knows when you let your husband work, He does it far better than you ever dreamed. Right? Joe, right? Say, ain't it the truth? See? It is. (laughs) Who said it's true over here? All right, Jackie. Somebody that is honest here. Honest. So what Naomi's doing is she is saying, God, I trust you, but I don't like what's going on right now. And I imagine... And as this, as this book's going to play out, I imagine in the back of each line, in the back story, God is smiling because he knows what's going to happen. He knows the end from the beginning. Look at how this verse ends in verse 22. It says, so Naomi, you can read it like this. So Naomi returned from Moab. Boom, boom, boom. Accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite. Oh, it's bad. 
her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem, and then read it like this. As the barley harvest was beginning. It's just beginning. And some of you need to see God is better than you have ever imagined. Some of you arrive back in Bethlehem and you feel barren. You feel not wanted, a Moabitess. That, do you know how I've ruined my past? God did this to me. And in the background, God's like, just wait. <laughs> just wait. You won't believe the answer. So in a way, what this first passage, kind of like the story of Christmas, you have these shepherds who are in a field. It's dark, probably cold out there, and this angel arrives in the sky and he says, go to Bethlehem, come back home. And that's what this is. This is an invitation to say, come back home. We have broken bread and we have the cup. This represents his body which was broken for you to forgive you of your sin, your past, your failures. You might have left Bethlehem and let everybody suffer on their own, feel cold-hearted. God knows, but he paid for it. And then he offers you the cup. The cup is simply saying, believe again. But it's too good to be true. Don't I have to work for salvation? So you mean to tell me all I got to do is believe? Come on, that sounds too good to be true because it is. That's what this is. It's something that's too good to be true. It's called faith. Therefore, there, listen to this. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. 